Chapter fifty two, part two of Life and Adventures of Martin Chuzzlewit. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Life and Adventures of Martin Chuzzlewit by Charles Dickens. Chapter fifty two, part two. Mr. Chuzzlewit resumed. Once resolved to try him, I was resolute to pursue the trial to the end. But while I was bent on fathoming the depth of his duplicity, I made a sacred compact with myself that I would give him credit on the other side for any latent spark of goodness, honour, forbearance, any virtue that might glimmer in him. For first to last there has been no such thing. Not once. He cannot say I have not given him opportunity— he cannot say I have ever led him on. He cannot say I have not left him freely to himself in all things, or that I have not been a passive instrument in his hands, which he might have used for good as easily as evil. Or if he can, he lies. And that's his nature, too. "'Mr. Chuzzlewit,' interrupted Pecksniff, shedding tears, "'I am not angry, sir. I cannot be angry with you. But did you never—' "'My dear sir, express a desire that the unnatural young man, "'who by his wicked arts has estranged your good opinion from me "'for the time being, only for the time being, "'that your grandson, Mr. Chuzzlewit, should be dismissed my house? "'Recollect yourself, my Christian friend.' "'I have said so, have I not?' retorted the old man sternly. "'I could not tell how far your specious hypocrisy had deceived him, knave.' and knew no better way of opening his eyes than by presenting you before him in your own servile character. Yes, I did express that desire, and you leaped to meet it, and you met it, and turning in an instant on the hand you had licked and beslavered, as only such hounds can, you strengthened and confirmed and justified me in my scheme. Mr. Pecksniff made a bow, a submissive, not to say a groveling, and an abject bow. If he had been complimented on his practice of the loftiest virtues, he never could have bowed as he bowed then. The wretched man who has been murdered, Mr. Chuzzlewit went on to say, then passing by the name of Tig, suggested Mark, of Tig, brought begging messages to me on behalf of a friend of his and an unworthy relative of mine and finding him a man well enough suited to my purpose, I employed him to glean some news of you, Martin, for me. It was from him, I learned, that you had taken up your abode with yonder fellow. It was he who, meeting you here in town one evening—you remember where? At the pawnbroker's shop? said Martin. Yes. Watched you to your lodging, and enabled me to send you a bank-note. I little thought, said Martin, greatly moved— "'that it had come from you. "'I little thought that you were interested in my fate if I had—' "'If you had,' returned the old man sorrowfully, "'you would have shown less knowledge of me as I seemed to be, "'and as I really was. "'I hoped to bring you back, Martin, penitent and humbled. "'I hoped to distress you into coming back to me. "'Much as I loved you, I had that to acknowledge, "'which I could not reconcile it to myself to avow, then, "'unless you made submission to me first. Thus it was I lost you. If I have had, indirectly, any act or part in the fate of that unhappy man, by putting means, however small, within his reach, heaven forgive me. 
I might have known, perhaps, that he would misuse money, that it was ill bestowed upon him, and that sown by his hands it could engender mischief only. But I never thought of him at that time as having the disposition or ability to be a serious impostor, or otherwise than as a thoughtless, idle-humoured, dissipated spendthrift, sinning more against himself than others, and frequenting low haunts, and indulging vicious tastes to his own ruin only. "'Begging your pardon, sir,' said Mr. Tapley, who had Mrs. Lupin on his arm by this time, quite agreeably, "'if I may make so bold as to say so, my opinion is, as you was quite correct, and that he turned out perfectly natural for all that.' "'There's surprising number of men, sir, who, as long as they've only got their own shoes and stockings to depend upon, will walk down hill, along the gutters, quiet enough and by themselves, and not do much harm. But set any on em up with a coach and horses, sir, and it's wonderful what a knowledge of driving he'll show, and how he'll fill his vehicle with passengers and start off in the middle of the road, neck or nothing, to the devil.' "'Bless your heart, sir. There's ever so many tigs a-pass in this here temple-gate any hour in the day, that only want a chance to turn out full-blown Montagues every one.' "'Your ignorance, as you call it, Mark,' said Mr. Chuzzlewit, "'is wiser than some men's enlightenment, and mine among them. You are right. Not for the first time to-day.' "'Now hear me out, my dears, and hear me, you, who, if what I have been told be accurately stated, are bankrupt in pocket no less than in good name. And when you have heard me, leave this place and poison my sight no more.' Mr. Pecksniff laid his hand upon his breast and bowed again. "'The penance I have done in this house,' said Mr. Chuzzlewit, "'has earned this reflection with it constantly above all others.' that if it had pleased heaven to visit such infirmity on my old age as really had reduced me to the state in which I feigned to be, I should have brought its misery upon myself. O oh, you, whose wealth like mine has been a source of continual unhappiness, leading you to distrust the nearest and dearest, and to dig yourself a living grave of suspicion and reserve, take heed that, having cast off all whom you might have bound to you, and tenderly, you do not become in your decay the instrument of such a man as this, and waken in another world to the knowledge of such wrong as would embitter heaven itself, if wrong or you could ever reach it. And then he told them how he had sometimes thought, in the beginning, that love might grow up between Mary and Martin, and how he had pleased his fancy with the picture of observing it when it was new, and taking them to task apart in counterfeited doubt, and then confessing to them that it had been an object dear to his heart, and by his sympathy with them, and generous provision for their young fortunes, establishing a claim on their affection and regard which nothing should wither, and which should surround his old age with means of happiness. How in the first dawn of this design, and when the pleasure of such a scheme for the happiness of others was new and indistinct within him, Martin had come to tell him that he had already chosen for himself, knowing that he, the old man, had some faint project on that head, but ignorant whom it concerned. How it was little comfort to him to know that Martin had chosen her, because the grace of his design was lost, and because finding that she had returned his love, he tortured himself with the reflection that they, so young, to whom he had been so kind a benefactor, were already like the world, and bent on their own selfish, stealthy ends. How in the bitterness of this impression, and of his past experience, he had reproached Martin so harshly, 
forgetting that he had never invited his confidence on such a point, and confounding what he had meant to do with what he had done, that high words sprung up between them, and they separated in wrath. How he loved him still, and hoped he would return. How on the night of his illness at the dragon he had secretly written tenderly of him, and made him his heir, and sanctioned his marriage with Mary, and how, after his interview with Mr. Pecksniff, he had distrusted him again, and burnt the paper to ashes, and had lain down in his bed, distracted by suspicions, doubts, and regrets. And then he told them how, resolved to probe this Pecksniff, and to prove the constancy and truth of Mary, to himself no less than Martin, he had conceived and entered on his plan, and how, beneath her gentleness and patience, he had softened more and more, still more and more, beneath the goodness and simplicity, the honour and the manly faith of Tom. And when he spoke of Tom, he said, God bless him, and the tears were in his eyes, for he said that Tom, mistrusted and disliked by him at first, had come like summer rain upon his heart, and had disposed it to believe in better things. And Martin took him by the hand, and Mary too, and John, his old friend, stoutly too, and Mark and Mrs. Lupin and his sister little Ruth, and peace of mind, deep, tranquil peace of mind, was in Tom's heart. The old man then related how nobly Mr. Pecksniff had performed the duty in which he stood indebted to society in the matter of Tom's dismissal, and how, having often heard disparagement of Mr. Westlock from Pecksniffian lips, and knowing him to be a friend to Tom, he had used, through his confidential agent and solicitor, that little artifice which had kept him in readiness to receive his unknown friend in London and he called on Mr. Pecksniff, by the name of Scoundrel, to remember that there again he had not trapped him to do evil, but that he had done it of his own free will and agency, nay, that he had cautioned him against it. And once again he called on Mr. Pecksniff, by the name of Hangdog, to remember that when Martin, coming home at last, an altered man, had sued for the forgiveness which awaited him, he, Pecksniff, had rejected him in language of his own, and had remorselessly stepped in between him and the least touch of natural tenderness. "'For which,' said the old man, "'if the bending of my finger would remove a halter from your neck, I wouldn't bend it.' "'Martin,' he added, "'your rival has not been a dangerous one, but Mrs. Lupin here has played duenna for some weeks, not so much to watch your love as to watch her lover. For that ghoul—his fertility in finding names for Mr. Pecksniff was astonishing— would have crawled into her daily walks otherwise, and polluted the fresh air. What's this? Her hand is trembling strangely. See if you can hold it. Hold it? If he clasped it half as tightly as he did her waist, well, well. But it was good in him that even then, in his high fortune and happiness, with her lips nearly printed on his own, and her proud young beauty in his close embrace, he had a hand still left to stretch out to Tom Pinch. "'Oh, Tom, dear Tom, I saw you accidentally coming here. Forgive me.' "'Forgive?' cried Tom. "'I'll never forgive you as long as I live, Martin, if you say another syllable about it. Joy to you both. Joy, my dear fellow, fifty thousand times.' "'Joy. There is not a blessing on earth that Tom did not wish them. There is not a blessing on earth that Tom would not have bestowed upon them if he could.' "'I beg your pardon, sir,' said Mr. Tapley, stepping forward. 
"'But Yao was mentioning just now a lady of the name of Lupin, sir?' "'I was,' returned old Martin. "'Yes, sir. It's a pretty name, sir.' "'A very good name,' said Martin. "'It seems a most a pity to change such a name into Tapley, don't it, sir?' said Mark. "'That depends upon the lady. What is her opinion?' "'Why, sir,' said Mr. Tapley, retiring with a bow towards the buxom hostess, "'her opinion is, as the name ain't a change for the better, but the individual may be, and therefore, if nobody ain't acquainted with no just cause or impediment, etc., the Blue Dragon will be converted into the Jolly Tapley, a sign of my own invention, sir, wary new, convivial, and expressive.' The whole of these proceedings were so agreeable to Mr. Pecksniff that he stood with his eyes fixed upon the floor, and his hands clasping one another alternately, as if a host of penal sentences were being passed upon him. Not only did his figure appear to have shrunk, but his discomfiture seemed to have extended itself even to his dress. His clothes seemed to have grown shabbier, his linen to have turned yellow, his hair to have become lank and frowsy, his very boots looked villainous and dim, as if their gloss had departed with his own. Feeling, rather than seeing, that the old man now pointed to the door, he raised his eyes, picked up his hat, and thus addressed him. "'Mr. Chuzzlewit, sir, you have partaken of my hospitality.' "'And paid for it,' he observed. "'Thank you. That savours,' said Mr. Pecksniff, taking out his pocket-handkerchief, "'of your old familiar frankness. You have paid for it. I was about to make the remark. "'You have deceived me, sir.' "'Thank you again. I am glad of it. "'To see you in the possession of your health and faculties on any terms is, in itself, a sufficient recompense. "'To have been deceived implies a trusting nature. "'Mine is a trusting nature. I am thankful for it. "'I would rather have a trusting nature, do you know, sir, than a doubting one.' Here Mr. Pecksniff, with a sad smile, bowed and wiped his eyes. "'There is hardly any person present, Mr. Chuzzlewit,' said Pecksniff, "'by whom I have not been deceived. "'I have forgiven those persons on the spot. "'That was my duty, and, of course, I have done it. "'Whether it was worthy of you to partake of my hospitality "'and to act the part you did act in my house, "'that, sir, is a question which I leave to your own conscience, "'and your conscience does not acquit you. "'No, sir, no.' "'Pronouncing these last words in a loud and solemn voice,' Mr. Pecksniff was not so absolutely lost in his own fervour as to be unmindful of the expediency of getting a little nearer to the door. "'I have been struck this day,' said Mr. Pecksniff, "'with a walking-stick, which I have every reason to believe has knobs upon it, "'on that delicate and exquisite portion of the human anatomy, the brain. "'Several blows have been inflicted, sir, without a walking-stick, "'upon that tenderer portion of my frame, my heart.' "'You have mentioned, sir, my being bankrupt in my purse. "'Yes, sir, I am. "'By an unfortunate speculation, combined with treachery, "'I find myself reduced to poverty. "'At a time, sir, when the child of my bosom is widowed, "'and affliction and disgrace are in my family.' "'Here Mr. Pecksniff wiped his eyes again, "'and gave himself two or three little knocks upon the breast, "'as if he were answering two or three other little knocks from within, "'given by the tinkling hammer of his conscience.' "'to express, cheer up, my boy. "'I know the human mind, although I trust it. "'That is my weakness. "'Do I not know, sir?' 
Here he became exceedingly plaintive, and was observed to glance towards Tom Pinch. "'That my misfortunes bring this treatment on me? "'Do I not know, sir, that but for them I never should have heard what I have heard to-day? "'Do I not know that in the silence and the solitude of night "'a little voice will whisper in your ear, Mr. Chuzzlewit? "'This was not well. This was not well, sir.' "'Think of this, sir, if you will have the goodness, "'remote from the impulses of passion, "'and apart from the specialities, "'if I may use that strong remark, of prejudice. "'And if you ever contemplate the silent tomb, sir, "'which you will excuse me for entertaining some doubt of your doing, "'after the conduct into which you have allowed yourself "'to be betrayed this day, "'if you ever contemplate the silent tomb, sir, think of me. "'If you find yourself approaching to the silent tomb, sir, think of me.' If you should wish to have anything inscribed upon your silent tomb, sir, let it be that I, ah, my remorseful sir, that I, the humble individual who has now the honour of reproaching you, forgave you, that I forgave you when my injuries were fresh and when my bosom was newly wrung. It may be bitterness to you to hear it now, sir, but you will live to seek a consolation in it. May you find a consolation in it when you want it, sir. Good morning.' With this sublime address Mr. Pecksniff departed, but the effect of his departure was much impaired by his being immediately afterwards run against, and nearly knocked down, by a monstrously excited little man in velveteen shorts and a very tall hat, who came bursting up the stairs and straight into the chambers of Mr. Chuzzlewit, as if he were deranged. "'Is there anybody here that knows him?' cried the little man. "'Is there anybody here that knows him? Oh, my stars! Is there anybody here that knows him?' They looked at each other for an explanation, but nobody knew anything more than that here was an excited little man with a very tall hat on, running in and out of the room as hard as he could go, making his single pair of bright blue stockings appear at least a dozen, and constantly repeating in a shrill voice, "'Is there anybody here that knows him?' "'If your brains is not turned topsy-turgy, Mr. Sweetlepipes,' exclaimed another voice, "'hold that there nigh you yearn, I beg you, sir.' At the same time Mrs. Gamp was seen in the doorway, out of breath from coming up so many stairs, and panting fearfully, but dropping curtsies to the last. "'Excuge the weakness of the man,' said Mrs. Gamp, eyeing Mr. Sweetlepipe with great indignation. "'And well I might expect it, as I should have knowed, and wishin' he was drowned in the Thames afore I had brought him here, which not a blessed hour ago he nearly shaved the noge off from the father of as lovely a family as ever Mr. Chuzzlewit was born three sets of twins, and would have done it, only he see it a-goin' in the glass and dodged the rager. And never, Mr. Sweetlepipes, I do assure you, sir, did I so well know what a misfortin' it was to be acquainted with you as now I do, which so I say, sir, and I don't deceive you.' "'I ask your pardon, ladies and gentlemen all,' cried the little barber, taking off his hat, "'and yours too, Mrs. Gamp, but—but—' he added this half-laughing and half-crying, "'is there anybody here that knows him?' As the barber said these words, a something in top-boots, with its head bandaged up, staggered into the room, and began going round and round and round, apparently under the impression that it was walking straight forward. "'Look at him!' cried the excited little barber. "'Here he is!' "'That'll soon wear off, and then he'll be all right again. "'He's no more dead than I am. "'He's all alive and hearty, ain't you, Bailey?' "'Rather so, Paul,' replied that gentleman. "'Look here,' cried the little barber, laughing and crying in the same breath. "'When I steady him, he comes all right. "'There, he's all right now. 
"'Nothing's the matter with him now, except that he's a little shook and rather giddy. "'Is there, Bailey?' "'Rather shook, Paul. Rather so,' said Mr. Bailey. "'What, my lovely Sari, there you are.' "'What a boy he is!' cried the tender-hearted Paul, actually sobbing over him. "'I never see such a boy. It's all his fun. He's full of it. "'He shall go into the business along with me. I am determined he shall.' We'll make it Sweetlepipe and Bailey. He shall have the sporting branch. What a one he'll be for the matches. And me the shaven. I'll make over the birds to him as soon as ever he's well enough. He shall have the little bullfinch and the shop and all. He's such a boy. I ask your pardon, ladies and gentlemen, but I thought there might be someone here that knowed him. Mrs. Gamp had observed, not without jealousy and scorn, that a favourable impression appeared to exist in behalf of Mr. Sweetlepipe and his young friend, and that she had fallen rather into the background in consequence. She now struggled to the front, therefore, and stated her business. "'Which, Mr. Chuzzlewit,' she said, "'is well be known to Mrs. Harris, as has one sweet infant, though she do not wish it known, in her own family, by the mother's side, kept in spirits in a bottle, and that sweet babe she see at Greenwich Fair, a-travelling in company with a pink-eyed lady, Prussian dwarf, and livin' skeleton, which judge her feelings when the barrel-organ played, and she was showed her own dear sister's child, the same not being expected from the outside picture, where it was painted quite contrary in a livin' state, a many sizes larger, and performing beautiful upon the arp, which never did that dear child nor do, since breathe it never did, to speak on in this wail, and Mrs. Harris, Mr. Chuzzlewit, has knowed me many year and can give you information that the lady which is widdered can't do better and may do worse than let me wait upon her, which I hope to do, permitting the sweet faces as I see afore me. "'Oh,' said Mr. Chuzzlewood, "'is that your business? Was this good person paid for the trouble we gave her?' "'I paid her, sir,' returned Mark Tapley. "'Liberal.' "'The young man's words is true,' said Mrs. Gamp, "'and thank you kindly.' "'Then here we will close our acquaintance, Mrs. Gamp,' retorted Mr. Chuzzlewit. "'And Mr. Sweetlepipe, is that your name?' "'That is my name, sir,' replied Paul, accepting with a profusion of gratitude some chinking pieces which the old man slipped into his hand. "'Mr. Sweetlepipe, take as much care of your lady lodger as you can, and give her a word or two of good advice now and then.' "'Such,' said old Martin, looking gravely at the astonished Mrs. Gamp, as hinting at the expediency of a little less liquor, and a little more humanity, and a little less regard for herself, and a little more regard for her patients, and perhaps a trifle of additional honesty. Or when Mrs. Gamp gets into trouble, Mr. Sweetlepipe, it had better not be at a time when I am near enough to the old Bailey to volunteer myself as a witness to her character. Endeavour to impress that upon her at your leisure, if you please.' Mrs. Gamp clasped her hands, turned up her eyes until they were quite invisible, threw back her bonnet for the admission of fresh air to her heated brow, and in the act of saying faintly, "'Less liquor! Sarah Gamp! Bottle on the chimney-piece! And let me put my lips to it when I am so disposed!' fell into one of the walking swoons in which pitiable state she was conducted forth by Mr. Sweetlepipe, who, between his two patients, the swooning Mrs. Gamp and the revolving Bailey, "'Had enough to do, poor fellow.' "'The old man looked about him with a smile "'until his eyes rested on Tom Pinch's sister "'when he smiled the more. "'We will all dine here together,' he said, "'and as you and Mary have enough to talk of, Martin, "'you shall keep house for us until the afternoon "'with Mr. and Mrs. Tapley. 
I must see your lodgings in the meanwhile, Tom. Tom was quite delighted. So was Ruth. She would go with them. Thank you, my love, said Mr. Chuzzlewit. But I am afraid I must take Tom a little out of the way on business. Suppose you go on first, my dear. Pretty little Ruth was equally delighted to do that. But not alone, said Martin, not alone. Mr. Westlock, I dare say, will escort you. Why, of course he would. What else had Mr. Westlock in his mind? How dull these old men are. You are sure you have no engagement? he persisted. Engagement? As if he could have any engagement. So they went off arm in arm. When Tom and Mr. Chuzzlewit went off arm in arm a few minutes after them, the latter was still smiling, and really, for a gentleman of his habits, in rather a knowing manner. End of chapter 52